The information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available are for general informational purposes only. Welcome to Rights Here, Rights Now, the podcast about disability, advocacy, and activism. I'm your advocate host, Virginia Ferris. And I'm your advocate host, Ren Fazuski. Every two weeks, we dig into relevant issues, current events, and avenues for self-advocacy. Because someone has to. And it might as well be us. This podcast is produced by the Disability Law Center of Virginia, the Commonwealth's Protection and Advocacy Agency for Disability Rights. Find out more at dlcv.org. So, Ren, we have a collaboration today. We do. I'm very excited. There's some of my favorite people. Yes, certainly the people that you and I work with the most outside of our own agency. Um, We have Deb Lockhart, the Director of the Office of Human Rights, and Tanika Goldman, the Deputy Director of the Office of Human Rights, um, just here to tell us about what their agency is, what they do, um, and how they can assist folks. Well, we're all about human rights here, so I'm very excited. (laughs) But before we jump in, let's check out disability in the news. Many families rely on summer camp programs for childcare when school is not in session. For families who have a child with a disability, the summer camp application process is more complicated than simply securing a spot before seats are filled. Just as important is ensuring that their child has the proper accommodations to fully participate in and enjoy summer camp. DLCV has developed a document titled entitled Happy Campers to help families learn about their child's right to accommodations and to navigate the process of requesting accommodations for summer camp. Well, Deb and Tanika, thank you so much for coming on here today. We are so excited to finally collaborate with you and have our listeners hear about the Office of Human Rights. Thank you. Yes, it's great to be here with you all. So first and foremost, we need to know what, what even is the Office of Human Rights? So I'll take that one, I guess. Um, I think maybe the best way to describe what we are is to kind of say what our role is and who we are. So um, the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services has a code mandate to assure certain rights for people that receive services, and that really is our job. Um, Our mission is to promote the basic precepts of human dignity, and that could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But we primarily do that by monitoring the complaint resolution process, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, and ensuring that providers that are licensed, funded, or operated by the department do their part um, relative to the regulations with their provider duties. So you you mentioned um, that the Office of Human Rights is part of the Department of Behavioral Health. Can you give us more information about what that means in terms of the clients that you serve? Sure, so the people that the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services serves are individuals that have an intellectual or developmental disability, um, people with a serious mental illness, um, people that are receiving services to support substance use 
disorders. Um, and that could look like different services in the community that are funded by the department, that are licensed by the department or operated by the department. And so for example, um, we have 12 mental health hospitals which are operated by the department and we have a training center um, that is operated by the department and upwards of 900, I believe, licensed providers in the community. Um, and so anyone receiving a service from any of those providers in the community that are licensed or operated by the department or receive funding from the department to provide a licensed service, um, those people, those individuals are supported by our office. We assure that the rights afforded to them in the human rights regulations um, actually occur. And just so I'm clear, the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services, they, um, they sort of fund and license pretty much all of the um, mental health, behavioral health, developmental services, and substance abuse services throughout Virginia. So if somebody's um, receiving a licensed service, um, that probably just is through DBHDS, right? Probably. Exactly. That's a great way to think about it. Yes. Or another point of entry would be the community services boards. Mm. Many of the services they provide are also licensed, funded through the department. So with that said, sort of having identified like, here's who you guys are, and here's where you are in state structure, and here's who you serve, like, give us, give us the spiel, give us, um, tell us more about what you guys do to to help and assist your clients. Okay, so I mentioned that there are several affirmative rights and these things are outlined in the human rights regulations. Um, and in a nutshell, that's really just that people um, deserve respect for basic human dignity, that the services they're provided are consistent with sound therapeutic practice, um, and that um, they have protection to exercise their legal, civil, and human rights. So that's kind of in a nutshell what they um, have the assurance of. Our role in that is to make sure that individuals that believe any of their assured rights have been violated, so they haven't been treated with dignity or respect, um, they haven't had the opportunity to participate in their treatment planning, for example, um, we have a complaint resolution process. And that's also outlined in the regulations. And so certainly if an individual doesn't feel comfortable, doesn't know how, or finds that the provider is not assisting with that process, um, that's where we step in. Um, our process also allows for what we call due process so that um, an individual can make a complaint about any of their assured rights. So for example, they believe that they've been abused um, they would notify their provider directly and the provider is supposed to report that, investigate that and offer a resolution. And if any of those things don't happen, an individual can reach out to our office and we will assist them through that process. Um, once the provider has offered a solution or um, provided what we call a finding, so they've indicated that abuse happened or abuse didn't happen, um, the individual at that point could agree with that or disagree with that. Um, and they have the opportunity to move through an appeal process through a local human rights committee all the way up to a state human rights committee. And again, our role is to help the individual through that process. Deb, as the director, as the head honcho of the Office of Human Rights, 
what would you consider the best reasons to call the Office of Human Rights? Honestly, um, I believe from the perspective of protecting individuals that we need to, you know, any if someone believes their rights were violated, if they're not being treated well, you make the call. We will make that determination when we talk to that person or that family member, whomever is making the call, whether or not it falls under of the purview of the Office of Human Rights and under the human rights regulations. There is no, I would rather err on the side of caution. I have always said that to our staff, err on the side of caution. And when it comes to protecting individuals that we serve. And so best reason is they feel that their rights were violated. And if it ends up that it's not, we will assist that person either getting in contact with you, which we do quite often, or maybe it would be getting in touch with APS or, or some other type of external body from DBHDS. So anything goes as far as I'm concerned. If you feel your rights were violated, then give us a call. So in addition to the human rights complaint process that you have sort of talked us through, are there any other um, services or um, educational stuff that uh, the Office of Human Rights provides? Yes, thank you, Virginia. I was, I was going to say, do you want to talk about our training initiatives? Yes. Yes, yes. We do have a statewide training plan. So um, I didn't mention this before, but we are a small yet mighty office of about 30 mm -hmm. folks. We are regionally based, and so we do offer um, provider training um, on a monthly basis, and that training ranges from um, training about how to report into the computerized human rights information system, and so that's the way that providers let us know there's been an allegation or a complaint. That's the system that we use to monitor that process, um, and then in addition to that training, we offer training about the human rights regulations, and we kind of take it in sections because that's also small but mighty. There mm -hmm. is information about um, how an individual's rights can be limited. And so that's very important that providers understand that process um, and that, in fact, it is a process. Um, there's information about um, treatment planning and how to document that, how to come and utilize the local human rights committee process. We also have training on the forms that we utilize for that process. Um, and the way that anyone would access that would be to go to the um, department's website and access information about human rights on the human rights page. Also, I think it's super important to mention that we have training designed specifically for people that are receiving services. Mm -hmm. um, we reference people with lived experience as individuals. And so we have training that we call rights and responsibilities. Um, and it is chock full with images, information, hyperlinks. Um, and so we would encourage folks to go again to the department's website um, and then access that information on the human rights page. I will also say that the department's website is ever evolving. And so if there's any problem accessing anything, if a link is broken, which is, you know, it happens sometimes, um, please, people should feel free to reach out to any advocate that they've ever worked with in the past and or utilize the human rights regional map um, and they will be able to identify the regional manager closest to them, and that person can get them the resources they need. When we made the decision to look at training and building that up a little bit, one of the things that I had been saying for a while is that I see us as proactive protectors of rights. 
And the reason for that is because we are, as Tanika said, a staff of 30, and we have thousands of people in our service system. So how do we reach everyone? You know, again, we partner with external advocacy agencies, but the big piece of this is we have to take on a proactive task. And the way to do that is to monitor the data that we get through the computerized human rights information system and offer training. Um, we've often said before, we have to maintain a culture of reporting. Um, if providers do not want to talk to us, do not want to engage with us, um, then we've lost an audience and we're not right. able to be as effective in our protection and advocacy. I mean, so we want that door to be open and we open that door by offering um, resources through training. And with the, Tanika was mentioning earlier, the part about the training for individuals, and we call that HR access. And that was done uh, with, uh, through the risk management committee at DBHDS. It actually became a quality initiative that we moved forward with and the SHRC took it over and assisted with a fellow that we had one of the governor fellows uh, was volunteering with our office and we ended up pulling together this training for individuals. So we were very excited about that and we hope to expand on it and use technology now to get some of that information out so people can speak up for themselves if necessary. So I think part of the, the human rights process is, you know, there is sort of a, you know, people in the community who are either receiving services in different areas or have previously received services or know somebody, you know, want to know more about the human rights process. And I know that there's these local human rights committees and a state human rights committee that um, is part of the human rights complaint process, but is also there to, to support, you know, the Office of Human Rights. If, can you tell me, tell us a little bit more about those committees and, you know, whether people have access to those committees? Sure, that's a good question. So yes, um, the Commonwealth Calendar is a good place to find information about when those committees, the Local Human Rights Committee and the State Human Rights Committee will meet. Um, generally speaking, the State Human Rights Committee meets about nine times a year, um, give or take bi-monthly, and local human rights committees have to meet at least four times a year. Um, but with the restructure of our regulations in 2017, we've made it so that um, access to the committees should be a bit easier. So an individual in any given region can access any local human rights committee in that region. And it was designed intentionally that way so as not to create barriers relative to calendars and planning, right? Um, and so the way that people can access those committees, again, is to go to the Commonwealth calendar to see the dates when the meetings are, as well as contact the regional advocate. Um, and that information can be found again on the DBHDS website on the human rights page. And the link I believe is called OHR regional contact map. Um, so you would reach out to the advocate and discover when that meeting would occur. Those meetings are open to the public. There's actually designated public comment time um, individuals are encouraged and um, able to submit public comments ahead of time. There are times, or maybe times I should say, when business um, that the local human rights committee or the state human rights committee conducts is done in executive closed session. And that is designed to protect the confidentiality of individuals receiving services. And so if you attend a meeting, either virtually, which happens a lot nowadays, 
or in person um, and that happens, you'll be asked to exit the meeting. And then once the committees come back into open session, you'd be invited back into those meetings. When you reach out to the advocate or the regional manager to get the logistics of the meeting, that would be a good time to ask them um, what their ideas are about the agenda so you can plan accordingly. And if anybody was, if anybody listening at home is interested in, you know, I know you guys said that you're a small but mighty office, um, but, you know, through the use of these local human rights committees, um, the state human rights committee, uh, your scope expands a little bit. If anybody at home wants to get involved um, or apply to be on, you know, a, a committee of their own, an LA is local to them, um, where should they go to do that? Thank you for that. That was perfect. Yes, that's um, great. Yes, we are always looking for volunteers. Uh, and there are kind of three categories that the Virginia Code allows um, to serve on the committee. Certainly people with lived experience, um, and I believe the code reference those references, excuse me, those people as consumers, and we reference them as individuals. Um, so people with lived experience, absolutely. Um, people that are serving in the capacity of a healthcare professional. So um, it may be that someone is um, employed by a licensed provider, and there are opportunities for even licensed providers to serve in this process. We think about the potential for conflicts of interest, um, but there are definitely ways to work around that. That input is also important to the process. And then the other group um, eligible to volunteer are called professionals. And so that would be anyone kind of outside the healthcare world. So an attorney um, um, generally are the people that are serving in that capacity. And so yes, please, if anyone listening fits that category or has questions about that, um, they can reach out again to any of our regional managers. As our website evolves, we plan to actually have the applications on the website. And so hopefully you can look for that soon. Um, that process is a rolling process. So um, feel free to get that information and submit that information at any time. So do you guys want to, um, just just so we have the resources in the audio, as well as our links, you know, our listeners can always find our links in the show notes and transcript, um, but do you want to give us um, that uh, web address too, that they can call if they want to talk to an advocate? So yes, the department's website is dbhds, as in Department Behavioral Health Developmental Services, dot Virginia spelled out, dot G-O-V. Well, thank you guys so much um, for coming on, for telling us about what it is that you do. I'm hoping that, um, you know, some of our listeners feel, you know, either empowered to contact their advocate and get services if that's something that they need, or they feel really, really empowered and contact you guys about getting on their local human rights committee. I think that's so great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank really you guys so much. Yeah, we really appreciate you doing this with us. And now, a DLCV highlight. The Biden administration is turning its attention to getting more people with disabilities vaccinated against COVID-19. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services says that the Center for Disease Control and the Administration for Community Living will provide nearly $100 million to improve access for people with disabilities and older adults. This population faces many challenges to getting vaccinated, such as transportation barriers, difficulty scheduling appointments, 
access to vaccination sites, and communication barriers. Most of the funding will go to aging and disability networks in every state, such as Centers for Independent Living, University Centers of Excellence in Disabilities, Protection and Advocacy Agencies, and State Councils on Developmental Disabilities. The money will help with scheduling vaccine visits, transportation to vaccine sites, helping people access in-home vaccine options, among others. The Secretary of Health and Human Services said the Biden administration is committed to expanding access to vaccines with a unique focus on ensuring that those hit hardest by COVID-19 and at highest risk for severe illness or death get vaccinated. Up until now, vaccine access has remained uneven for those with disabilities, but hopefully this new partnership will change that and all who desire the vaccine will be able to receive it. Thank you again to Deb and Tanika for taking time out of their extremely busy schedule to come and talk to us and tell our listeners about the Office of Human Rights and what they do. I'm really hoping that some people are listening to this and are inspired to apply to be on the local human rights committees because we really, you know, as somebody who takes hearings in front of the local human rights committees, we need some we need a bunch of rights-minded individuals, uh, yeah. you know, filling up those seats. Yeah, and I already know that we would love to have them on again in the future. They were excellent guests, so we really appreciate all the information they were able to give us today. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Rights Here, Rights Now, brought to you by the Disability Law Center of Virginia. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. If you need assistance or want more information about DLCV and what we do, you can visit us online at dlcv.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Disability Law VA, follow us on Facebook at the Disability Law Center of Virginia, and make sure to share those links with your friends. Until next time, I'm Ren Fazuski. And I'm Virginia Ferris, and this has been Rights Here, Rights Now. Rights Now.